Okay, any thoughts that need to be answered before we go on? I guess not. So, here we are. Number 319. We are in Samyama. Samyama means attunement with or absorption in. Number Sutra is number 319. Samyama, on distinguishing marks on another person's body, give knowledge of the nature of his thoughts. And Swami says there are um, easy ways to tell a person's character from the way he sits, walks, speaks, or looks at you. The ways are innumerable. My knowledge of distinguishing marks is limited, Swamiji says. But if Patanjali meant something simple, like a drooping mouth or drooping eyes, I think I can read those marks. But somehow, however, I suspect he meant something much subtler. And then he tells this wonderful story. Dr. Lewis, Yogananda's first Kriya Yoga disciple in America, told me this odd little story. One day, the master asked me, would you please remove your shirt? I did so. He walked around me, looking at my upper body. Then he asked, would you mind taking off your trousers? Again, I did so, and he studied me some more. At last, he asked me, would you mind removing your underwear? I did that too, though puzzled as to what he was getting at. He walked around me once again, carefully studying me. At last, he said, you have good karma. Wow. He then, he then requested me to get dressed again. Isn't that just fascinating? Well, you know, the, the body is a manifestation of your consciousness. And the body shifts all the time according to your consciousness. It shifts in terms of health. It shifts in terms of the way it looks. You know, I've, had, I've, I've played sometimes looking in the mirror at just the face that I have. But then if you think certain thoughts or just pull the mouth down or, you know, crinkle it up in a certain way or look angry, you can see how exactly the same face could go in a completely other direction if the habitual consciousness behind it were a certain way. And uh, so you know that it's, it's quite arbitrary. Swami once said about someone that, it was, a young woman, he said, she is... Um, whether or not she looks pretty depends entirely on the consciousness she has at the moment. He contrasted these two women. He said, one always looks pretty. She always has a pretty face no matter what's going on behind it. But this other woman, her face is entirely dependent. She either looks attractive or not, depending on what's going on behind it. Isn't it? It's very interesting, isn't it? But it's true for all of us. I've often thought you could read someone's whole destiny from the shape of their eyebrows if you knew how to look at it because there's not one not one tiny part of you that isn't an expression of your consciousness I mean here it is all the people in this room look how different we all look one from another and even when you have twins even identical twins you know after a while there's just nuances that you begin to see because it's just the way we are and we're all working with the same basic equipment so what is the force behind it that makes us all look so different one from another so but there's then therefore if you really were able to see it subtly like apparently the masters are there are apparently and I've I've read this in the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna also that he often looked at his disciples at their bodies really carefully I believe he looked at Vivekananda's body just in the same way that master did he wanted to sort of see who he was and he could tell Uh, And on a grosser level, as Swami says, 
you know, someone's drooping mouth or drooping eyes, or the way people carry themselves. A lot of times you can see the way people carry themselves. Um, A lot of times bent over shoulders are actually an attempt to pull back the heart. Or an habitual energy of leaning into things with the mind often causes people to be, you know, bent over like that. I've had, I have to fight to keep my head back because I tend to push at the world. And I sometimes notice when I'm watching um, the videos, especially on Sunday, that I'm leaning out. I'm leaning out just trying somehow and I, I try to pull back into center when I remember. So now you all know you can kind of signal to me. <laughs> but I watch it and I feel it in myself. You know, I'm assuming a posture trying to get the ideas out instead of relaxing in the center and letting them go. It's, it's, and you know, someone was saying to me recently about those guys who wear their pants so low and they were pointing out to me, and I'm not going to repeat the words, but all the obscenities that they use all relate to the first and second chakras. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of obscenities, but most of them relate to the first and second chakras, but their traditional language is just laced with things that are just about that. You know, elimination or sexuality, and that's all they're talking about. It's terrible, isn't it? But that's just where consciousness is centered. I've, I've joked with you all, and I, I've actually done this sometimes when somebody has a very unusual speech characteristic sometimes. I'll, t- I'll try to talk in that same rhythm. I don't just mean an accent, but a, a peculiarity. Like, what would it feel like that it would come out like that? And, and sometimes you can really understand. Accents are something else, but Swamiji said a lot of uh, communication or miscommunication is actually rhythm. He said one of the reasons that the way that the kind of tradi- the way black people sometimes talk in a certain rhythm and white people talk in a different rhythm, he says a lot of their misunderstanding each other is because the rhythms are so off. I, I remember once I was on the phone with a, 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 a travel agent who had a very um, intense, he spoke Indian English. And I couldn't understand him until I started mimicking his accent. We were on the phone, so he couldn't see me. So I started talking in the same rhythm that he was talking in, and then I could, I could understand him at that point. It was, it was really peculiar to me, but I just couldn't understand him until I started talking like he was. And then somehow we were on the same page. And, you know, Master was really extreme with that in the pictures that you see where he actually looked like the people he was with even though we, the, the, the big example is when he was with Porthes Gill, who was a, a sort of burly, heavy man. Master looked burly and kind of soft and heavy. And then he was with Amalita Galakuchi, who was a thin, bird-like little lady. And Master looked bird-like. Impossible to know. He Certainly when he st- stood with the American Indians, he looked totally like one of the Indian chiefs. Just, of course, his, uh, his natural physiology, but... Still, when you look at him with the Indian chiefs, the American Indians, he looks so uh, American Indian, Native American. And you look at another picture on the page, he doesn't look anything like that. Because he, would, he didn't have a consciousness that he had to protect. He was able to just slide right into whatever consciousness was around him, so much so that his whole body would assume it. So it's, it's, it's something to pay attention to because it's one of those things that you can access you know, it's, more, it's easier to access that you can begin to pay attention and notice what your own body is doing 
And when you see your body assuming a particular, either developing a particular characteristic or assuming a certain attitude, it's sometimes easier to get at your body than it is to get at your mind. <laughs> so you can work on that. I mean, it, you know, the most natural one is that, you know, the tendency when somebody's saying something you don't want to hear and you sort of notice yourself pretending to listen and then you realize. <laughs> or just in general, just sitting in life with a protected attitude instead of a, an open attitude. I remember, though, on the opposite side of that, this isn't marks on the body, this is just behavior. Um, Swamiji was speaking uh, in San- the Santa Cruz area, and he hadn't been down there ever in a long time. And we were—it's you know—it's still very much a lot of aging in place hippies in various areas of that city. And we were somewhere in one of those areas, and uh, some people in the room. <laughs> even. But anyway, there's a certain vibe down there that is not Palo Alto. It's another tribe. It was always another tribe, and. Uh, we we were just somewhere and we didn't have at that at that time you didn't have Google where you could look up things so we just went into whatever coffee shop was nearby it was a cold day and Swami had on both a beret and a jacket and he sat down at the table and we ordered tea and we were sitting there for a while and I asked him you know would you like to take off your coat and your hat no he said <laughs> just like that it was just like I don't see anything in this room that I want to relate to is what he said I mean he wasn't you know, being cruel or anything. It was just wasn't a consciousness that he wanted to particularly participate in. So he deliberately just held himself and swaddled and aloof from it. Uh, he was there to sort of see what was going on there. I think he had to give a talk and he was just walking around town. But it was an interesting comment. And so we find ourselves unwilling to take in energies a lot of the time. But this is more interesting, the way the body is made. So <clears throat> there you have it. Yeah, I said everything I had to say. Any questions or comments on this? Okay, number 320. Samyama, in this case, does not refer to knowledge of a person's hidden motives. And Swami simply says, we're going to deal with that later, so I will too. (laughs) 321. Samyama, attunement with or absorption on the body and on the light surrounding it can make the body invisible. Isn't that interesting? In autobiography of a yogi, there are several instances of yogis becoming invisible. Yogananda called it an aura of invisibility. We can all accomplish this, though, not so dramatically. If we sit in a public place and think ourselves invisible, others, even friends, may not notice our presence. You can think yourself invisible and go about unnoticed, though not unseen. In other words, once again, we are responding so much of the time to consciousness. You know, matter is the expression of consciousness. And if consciousness is a certain way, then matter itself will also express that. I remember when Arati and I, this was many, many years ago, uh, many years ago, were traveling as an advanced team for Swami Kriyananda when he was giving a program, as it happened in the city of Denver. And there was some kind of an event being held at a very wealthy person's home with a lot of the the new age groups in the city. And we had managed to get ourselves invited so we could talk to people about Swami's coming. And we were just country girls at that point and we didn't have 
uh, we were in our 20s and we were not very experienced in any way and we were not, didn't have particularly nice clothes or anything. And we suddenly found ourselves standing at the door of this huge mansion with all these fancy cars parked in front of it to walk into the, this place where we didn't really know anybody. And we were just a little nervous just for a second. And then, we, and then I don't know whether Arati said it to me or I said it to her. Childlike joy is always in fashion. We said, <laughs> and we just knocked on the door and just sailed right in. Just had this great sense suddenly of total confidence, and actually met a woman who is, has remained a lifelong friend of ours. That you know, just sort of like, but it, it's just you know that moment of, who am I? Where am I? What am I going to project? You know, and it's it's our aura. Um, He's talking about being invisible, but it works the other way too, which is also to be seen and how we're going to be seen. There was a book I read. Uh, uh, it, had, it was something called like True Beauty or Ageless Beauty. I can't remember. It was a very good book. It was a book for women about how to be attractive, but it was actually a very deep book with, even though it had, you know, how to do your eyebrows and your hair and stuff, it really had much, much more subtle message than that. I wish I could remember the name of it. But there was a, a story that was told in there about a very famous actress, whose name I also don't remember. And, of course, uh, people who use their persona, their product is their persona, you know, hurt the way she looked and the way she could project her magnetism. She was demonstrating for the author of this book. She said, because she, was a very, she had a very famous face, so people would see her and recognize her on the street. And I think they were in New York City. And she, she demonstrated for this woman. She said, watch, I'm going to walk down this street and nobody is going to notice me. And she actually did. Same dress, same face. Just completely, consciously withdrew her energy. Walked a few blocks on the street and not one person recognized her. And then she said, now watch. And she turned and opened up her magnetism and she was being stopped all the way down. Just as simple as that because she had learned to do that one way or another because it was part of her profession to do it. But it also tells us how much, you know, what we decide to do is really how the world receives us and what kind of energy we're putting out is how we're received. If it's all self-conscious and anxious and nervous, then that's what people see in us, literally. And when we can't make an impression because we become invisible, perhaps not by choice. You know, this is also an issue. Um, I was thinking about uh, there's a story also in uh, Tom, Tom Brown's book. Tom Brown is a, a naturalist who trains people to um, follow tracks and he was trained as a Native American in modern times. And he tells the story when he was a young man he used to, his playground was some, uh, it, he lived in New Jersey, but there was some big undeveloped area. And this is where his Native American mentor would take him out and teach him about the natural world. And it was a, a fine place, except that there were a lot of feral dogs there. And the feral dogs could actually be quite dangerous. And he tells the story of being alone in that wilderness area and finding himself um, pursued by these feral dogs and not really able to escape from them. And he sort of went up to this sort of hill area 
But when he got up there, he, could, he didn't know how he was going to get away without having to cross the paths of the dogs, and he wasn't sure what would happen. So having no other choice, he sat down, and he didn't exactly call it meditation, but he did what he'd been taught to do, which is he completely merged his aura into the natural world around him. He simply became one with the world around him. And in that, he lost um, consciousness of the immediate um, universe where he was sitting because he was in a, a higher vibration. And he sat for some period of time like that. And when he came out of it, the dogs were gone. They were nowhere to be seen. And because he was a tracker, he was able to see what had happened to the dogs. And he saw that, the, that he saw his own footsteps getting up there. Then he saw the dogs pursuing him. And they were going right for, for him. And then they lost the scent. And he was right in front of them. They lost the scent. He saw them scurry around all through the whole area looking for him. And finally giving up and going away. You know that uh, I sometimes think about the Native Americans because they had so many um, amazing practices and capabilities and how lightly they lived upon the earth, you know, how, uh, how much less they insulated themselves or needed to insulate themselves. I mean, see how insulated we are here. We don't have any ability really to live without this much insulation between us and the natural world it's just we can be sentimental about it but the fact is uh, we can't whereas they were always able to live um, so lightly you know in in temporary structures and you know just being in and out of the elements and in and out with the animals and so on like that their their whole um, relationship to the greater cosmos uh, was so entirely different than ours is. It's not a practice that you can just pick up piecemeal, though. You know, it's, a, it's a practice. It, it's a whole practice and a whole way of, of relating to the world in which w- w- you see all the interrelationships and you live in harmony with them. Well, the point I was trying to make here is, you know, once we have separated ourselves so much from natural forces, whether they are either the world of nature or divine forces, naturally we have to, we, we become so much more insecure because we we do need so many more things to protect us, and and then we get into the mindset that in order to protect ourselves we need more of the same things, and we we just never think about backing up all the way to the point where we're self-sufficient with nothing, and the more advanced a civilization gets, the more self-sufficient it is with nothing. See, from our perspective, we think the more stuff it has, the more advanced it is. But, and that's one of the reasons that when you know, people dispute theories of higher ages and so on, where is the evidence? You know, where are the freeways? Where are the big buildings? And we don't realize that it's only when we're primitive that we need all of this heavy material things in order to just even enable us to live comfortably on the planet. And you imagine the freedom, the freedom of the yogis in the Himalayas. There's so many stories of even uh, mountain climbers and uh, talk about, I mean, the high mountain climbers. I was, I don't remember the exact details, but, you know, some man climbing with all the latest equipment way up in the 20,000 
meter things and all of a sudden a barefoot yogi just walks by him and just sails right up. (laughs) It's like, where is he coming from? How is he doing it? The Tibetans who can uh, sit out in the snow with nothing around them and even melt the snow around them just by generating the, the heat from inside of them. There's just so many ways that we can live that are not the ones we're used to. And being invisible, I guess, is just one of them. <laughs> Master talked about uh, that he wrote the poem Samadhi while riding, riding on the New York subway. Remember he says that? Riding end to end. He said, uh, no one uh, disturbed me. He said, in fact, they didn't even see me. So did he make himself physically invisible or did he just make himself, did he cloak himself in an aura of invisibility? Of course, he was a very unusual figure, so he would have been noticed. But he just put himself in the most worldly possible place and then just attuned himself to a different vibration like Tom Brown did. If the dogs couldn't even sniff him, probably the people just couldn't see him. I was just reading today an autobiography of a yogi about Babaji when Sri Yukteswar came into Lahiri's ashram and Babaji was there, but Sri Yukteswar didn't see him. And later Babaji said, your gaze is not yet faultless. You couldn't see me when I was hiding behind the sunlight. Okay, I was just trying to think, how do you hide behind the sunlight? <laughs> but of course he could. Because sunlight, sunlight, from a certain point of view, is denser than the yogi's consciousness. So he was able to, to hide behind it and not be seen. Well, I was thinking the... Um, this world is a plaything to the masters. We're so stuck in it. Jesus also, um, well, Jesus also uh, was said to have been able to disappear himself in uh, the visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich, um, which are this German uh, visionary. She says many times in the course of Jesus's life when he provoked the authorities and they were coming after him, he solved the problem by just disappearing, you know. And they sort of say in the Bible that he kind of went into the crowd and they couldn't find him. She goes so far as to say he just became invisible. He made himself invisible. We know he walked on water and things like that. It's like that which appears solid to us um, by Samyama. <laughs> the masters are able to just uh, change it completely. Okay. So 3.22 says... Thus also sounds and other sensations can be made to disappear. One who is himself beyond all vibrations can manipulate the vibrations in this vibratory universe. Um, You know, I was realizing that we're talking now on a very, very high level of having sufficient self-control and magnetism out into the world to just manipulate the physical world. But the fact of the matter is, in all of our lives, we're always trying to influence the world around us, aren't we? I mean, if we try to accomplish anything, what we're trying to do is we're trying to pull the magnetism of this world into some reality that we consider to be beneficial and pleasing to us, whether we're trying to raise a child, uh, whether we're trying to make money, to do a job, to keep our physical bodies healthy, um, to um, run a business, whatever it might be, we're standing at a certain point 
and we're trying to use our energy and our magnetism to manifest a certain result. Um, many of you, some of you have been with this Ananda colony long enough to remember when much of what we have now we didn't have. Just the other day I was sitting in here looking at this building, which we've now been in for 20 years, 21 or so years, but we, were, we just weren't always here. And there was just this collective force, a step-by-step determination that we would not spend the rest of our lives in the office suite that we were renting on California Avenue, that somehow, somewhere in this world, there was going to be a church building and it was going to be ours. And there was a, just a lot of um, force put forward to, to bring all those vibrations of attracting the building and the opportunity to buy it, then you know, winning the bid and having the money and keeping the mortgage up and then renovating and making it beautiful, all the things that we did, all of that. And it really was by attunement and absorption in um, the, the vibrations of what we're trying to make happen. So here we're talking about if we're attuned this way or absorbed that way, then the very universe is going to respond to the energy that we're putting out. So we may not be able to um, play with the world, the laws of the material world quite as casually as the masters can, but our very effort, however small it is, is the direct pathway to that, which is one of the reasons that it's, it's essential for our spiritual well-being also to strive for both excellence and success and accomplishment in whatever we do. Because we will never, because the, the principles are the same. It's just <clears throat> we begin to operate them on a higher and higher level. Does that make sense? So even as we listen here, we hear this very extreme promise, but we're practicing. And whatever little bit we can do now is what's moving us toward these last sutras. <laughs> okay, any comments or questions? I know these sutras don't lend themselves to as much conversation as some do. Okay. 323. Karmas are of two kinds. Those which manifest instantly and those which manifest more slowly. By samyama, on these different kinds of karma and by observing certain portents of death, the yogi knows exactly when he will die. And one who has the power to leave his body consciously at death is sensitive to the forces that will combine to take him out of it. Well, one of the things I think Patanjali is doing here, you know, earlier on when we were talking about the yamas and the niyamas and the benefits of that, that were realities that were a little more accessible to our everyday life, what you're seeing, Patanjali was telling you that if you do this, these will be the consequences of it. And he's... Somebody was writing to me, wrote to me a letter um, that I just got, and uh, she was saying that from a young age uh, she'd had a certain uh, passion for divine, for God, and that more recently in meditating she'd had certain experiences, and she'd started listening to this class, and it was so wonderful to her to have those experiences confirmed. 
Because when things happen to us that we're not familiar with, if you can go to spiritual authority and have spiritual authority confirm you recognize your experiences in what's written, it gives you confidence. You may remember back early on in this, Patanjali says one of the obstacles to spiritual growth is false visions and hallucinations, wrong notions. So how do we avoid, you know, how can we tell the difference between that which is a true vision and which is a false? What is a wrong notion and what is a true notion? Well, orthodoxy is one of the ways to tell. If the masters through the ages tell us that certain things are possible and we're having those experiences and then you read it in a book, you feel uh, validated and often guided. Well, right here he's telling us, you know, and so there are the yogis who have a sense of their own capability to perceive their own death and Patanjali tells them, yes, that's exactly right. You will be able to do that. Just as I, I said earlier in this section of the book, just talking about how this is written for so many levels. And for some people, it's like they're having a premonition of their own end, the end of life, and they realize, here it is, it's right here in Patanjali, this is going to happen. And so, but what he's telling us is with these two kinds of karma, the instant karma and that which manifests more slowly, if we're always paying attention to the way the, the forces are working themselves out in our own lives, um, instant karma is uh, something that we all used to really enjoy talking about. Instant karma is very good karma because instant karma is as soon as it happens, you see the consequences and so you don't have any time to forget. Swamiji was all, all, often used to tell the story. He, had, he never told it much toward the end, but uh, when in 1978, when he set off on his nationwide tour, he got as far as Los Angeles and uh, a very generous man bought him a motorhome because they were traveling by car. Swami had always wanted to have a motorhome because when you travel and lecture a lot and you have to stay in hotels or in people's houses, it's very, um, it, it saps your energy. Whereas if you can be within your own atmosphere and have your own home wherever you go, it makes the tour so much easier. And he was setting off on this three-month tour across the country so being, being given that motorhome ride at the beginning was just incredible grace from God. When I was traveling a lot, I actually prayed for a motorhome and someone gave us a motorhome. It's one of those few times when those things had happened to me. But it just completely changed the experience. I had been traveling without it before and I, as I said to Divine Mother, I will keep doing this, but oh Lord, if you would give me a motorhome, it would be so much easier. And as soon as I got it, it was just so just completely transformed the experience because I was always home. And so I could go anywhere in the country that we could drive to and never left home. And that just made everything uh, uh, just a universe different. So Swamiji is in this motor home and he was just, as he put it, he was just so delighted by it. His, he was skipping up and down the aisle. It was, it, it was long enough to have an aisle. And he said even as he was doing it, he was thinking to himself, you know, if I allow this to give me so much pleasure, there's going to be a return. And he, then he tells the story of how, and he always mentions Vidura's name, Vidura parked it, but it, it, he says he left it in gear. I'm not sure they left it in gear or left it out of gear. But whatever it was, it slowly inched its way forward and they were parked by a Safeway until the bumper hit the front, the Safeway, the wall of the building. 
it didn't really, it was moving so slowly, it didn't really hurt the motorhome. But Swami was in the back, he had one knee on the counter, he was up like this, getting something out of a top shelf. The thing was rolling without their noticing, and when he was in this position, it hit the wall, which threw him off of the bench where he was, and he, to break his fall, he reached out like that and broke his finger. And he said, even as he broke his finger, he was even more delighted, because now it was all finished. <laughs> He'd allowed himself to become too happy about the motorhome and now it had broken his finger and that was all zero and it was no problem. <laughs> I mean, he had to play the guitar and he had a broken finger, but nonetheless, he just managed the whole thing perfectly happy about it. Whenever, I, in my own life too, whenever, you know, the consequences of my own actions have happened to me just in the moment that I do it, it's always, it's a very happy feeling actually even if the consequences are not pleasant, because there you are. You know, aberration response from the universe. Bing, bing, like that. And it's a nice feeling of settled. The debt, it's, it's all even. And it's also, it helps you to really see. And in fact, the karma comes back faster. It's good karma to have instant karma. Because that means, remember what Master's phrase? Um, conflicting cross-currents of ego. The reason karma doesn't come to us so quickly is because we have conflicting cross-currents of ego that even though energy is going out in this direction, there's all these other energies also that hold it at bay. And it just can't happen. I, I think of, I mean, sometimes a person does evil, but they also do some good, or they're an evil person, but they're a powerful one. And so they have enough magnetism to, to keep manifesting the world they want to manifest, even though they're creating wreckage left and right, they can still go on for a long time until finally it all catches up with them. But also, the longer it's delayed, the more sometimes power it gets, the more negative energy you set in motion. Whereas if you step out of line and it hits you, just being like that, then it's just done. It's over. Nitai once, I remember, just talked about it. He, did, he didn't exactly know what the karma was for, but he was standing somewhere... It was, he was looking at the view. He might have even been at the Grand Canyon or something like that. And he was just kind of, you know, like this, just kind of looking like this. And then all of a sudden he turned to speak to someone and he hadn't realized he'd walked right up to a sign like this. And when he turned like that, it just, bing, hit him right in the head like that. Just like from, from nothing to womp like that. And just like something, just in a moment, you know, you're inattentive, bing, it happens like that. Oh, okay, lesson learned. And so when karma takes longer, though, see, it's more confusing then because we don't remember and we've been in so many other places that by the time it comes to us, we're not, we're not sure why it's there. And so that's why Patanjali urges us, the more we really pay attention to that which has immediate consequences and to even that which seems to, quote, come out of nowhere, um, we can begin to just understand everything. I mean, death is, to be able to know your own death is really like way, a way high achievement in terms of being able to gauge the reality of your life. But before we're capable of doing that, we can certainly begin to learn a lot about who we are, what's causing our life to happen. And a lot of it is, it's not, it's not even just a question of knowing it before it happens, it's also looking at it very carefully when it happens. 
what would cause this kind of karma? You know, it's just, it's just a very interesting question. What would cause this kind of karma? I had a friend and we were, we were talking about, you know, various kinds of karma and the, uh, the, there was an acquaintance of ours who, who had a highly, um, uh, what's the right word? A, uh, a child with a great many disabilities and, and to such an extent that the child would never live an independent life. And so the parents faced lifelong parenting. There was never going to be an end to their parenting, whereas most parents know that at a certain point, you know, the, the constancy of care will give way to the child's independence, quite apart from any satisfaction one might feel in seeing the child launched. Still, there's just this, this realization this is a temporary, not a permanent responsibility. Depending on how everybody feels and what the circumstances are, people may feel more or less um, in bondage if the responsibility becomes permanent. Sometimes they do. Sometimes the bond between the parent and the child is such that it's almost like they set it up deliberately for the opposite reason so that they never have to leave each other. But so someone will say, well, what could be the karma of this? Oh, I don't know. Let's say you had a family and you decided that it was too much responsibility and you just ran away. Just ran off with your secretary and just left someone else to raise those kids. You know, what, what, would, what would be the karma of that? Well, you would be held really responsible, wouldn't you? At some point later on, you would have to be because you ignore your responsibilities and then they, they keep coming back to you. But you could go off that whole lifetime and seemingly just get a free ride. And then eventually it catches up with you. So if we ask ourselves these questions, not, not merely personal, but I mean, I, I'm because I'm involved with a lot of people and sometimes they, they come and ask me. And I often make up and I, I freely admit it's not by any means um, intuitive insight necessarily except in, intuition into the nature of the situation. You know, what kind of, what might cause this to happen? And I certainly find it useful in my own life to just spin a possible story. And I don't mean to be fanciful but something that connects what kind of past life action could result in this kind of experience. And if we constantly are watching our lives in that way, constantly seeing the present, you know, it's difficulties or successes in terms of what might cause it. Swamiji often has commented, you see someone who, whose life seems to be going so well, everything they do works out. They have a great relationship, they can make money effortlessly, they have good health. He said, you think they're so lucky compared to you, especially if you're just, you know, holding on by your um, knuckles. He said, uh, but you don't see all the work that they put into it. You don't see how many incarnations of, of constant determined effort they put in to master themselves and their universe so that this one was easy. It's, you know, all that magnetism going into it before. So we pay attention. And then Patanjali tells us, if we're paying that close attention, we'll be able to know everything about our life. And we'll be able to realize that the sands of time are running out. And it's almost time. And many people do that. They'll tell you. I mean, people who, who have not otherwise manifested that kind of awareness, they'll often know that they're, they're done. They can feel that it's just about over. So...
Any other? Yes, Marilyn, Chandra. Instant karma. If I say something mean to somebody and um, they get angry at me, is that instant karma? Um, no, that's just karma. <laughs> I mean, you are getting an in, you're getting instant feedback, certainly. Yeah, I mean, so in a sense it is. I was thinking of things that are more dramatic. Yeah. I was telling you the whole story last week about thinking Ill, Ill of the goddess Durga in that monkey temple, and then the monkey jumped on my back to get my attention. That was instant karma. Negative thought, negative reaction. So yeah, in a sense it is. But it's, it's, that's, so, that's so unobscure. I whack you over the head and you turn back and whack me. You can call that instant karma, but that's also just pure cause and effect. What did you expect? <laughs> instant karma is more fun as a rule. <laughs> well, what, what about if I say something mean and then I feel guilty? Is that instant karma? No, I'm talking about when the, when the karma balances. When karma balances? See, when you, when you say something mean and somebody says something mean back to you, it, it hasn't really necessarily gone to zero. You just may say something mean to them and then they'll you know, just keep going. Instant karma is when cause and effect. And you just you put out a karmic problem that you get, and it's neutralized, the debt's paid, and you're standing there. So, so mm-hmm. um, feeling, feeling guilty about saying something mean... It means it? only that you're aware enough to know you made a mistake. Oh. You haven't resolved it in any particular way. You've just set it in motion and now you know it. Yeah, and, and guilt is just another kind of karma which is as bad as the original. So it doesn't do you any good at all. Now you've added one more problem to the whole problem. That's so wonderful to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought you'd be delighted to tell it, to know it. That's why I told you. <laughs> and, you know, Swami had spent years trying to explain to me that guilt is not the same as, re- as reformation. Guilt is just, in fact, guilt is often a way of just um, ego obsession you know, egoic obsession that just keeps you bound in a whole nother way. So now you have the original error and now you have a psychological complex about the original error and the psychological complex itself will start a whole nother round. It's, it's a mess. Do Kriya. <laughs> okay. Anything else? Any other comments? All right. We used to... Uh, for uh, one year or two years at Ananda, we, used, we gave, this was in the very, very early years of our community when we were just a bunch of 20-year-olds out in the country. Uh, 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 Santosh drove a truck, um, a big truck, off the cliff on the way to the Yuba River. The community has that road up to the river, and right at the top, he was going down, the brakes failed, I think. And, or he started, and he went right off, right off, and was heading right down that really steep canyon. And this very small bush stopped this very large truck. I mean, it was it was one of those, uh, the many stories at the beginning of Ananda of real divine protection, because there was there was nothing between him and hundreds of feet plunge into the river, and then this little bush, you know, really little bush, just stopped it like that. So we gave him the most dramatic karma of the year award. <laughs> and then we told him, it was on the ward, even though there is no direct prohibition against winning this in consecutive years, it is not advisable to do so. <laughs> but that was something else entirely, the most dramatic karma of the year award. <laughs> yeah, those are quite a thing. 
You really feel the hand of God in that moment. That's called mitigated karma, which is yet another category that Patanjali is not talking about, but where you know that the karmic force that was due you was a lot bigger than the one that reached you and that somehow the, ma- the master inserted himself between you and your destiny and just took the blow on himself and left you, in this case, alive. Swami tells the story about Norman in Mount Washington coming down Mount Washington with the brakes had failed and they just were not going to go anywhere. And Norman said, Master, is this what you want? And then just in that moment he said it was like a giant hand just put its hand right on the big truck just slowed it down to a dead stop with no mechanical intervention. But, Master, is this what you want? No, I don't think so. You know, you had the karma for this to happen to you, but the guru literally just inserts himself between you and your karma. Uh, Swami said, uh, you know, karma is, the cause and effect of karma is uh, different for devotees. That was the word. I also read something else, just by the way. Swamiji said that uh, at a certain point, your good karma, and he was talking about seva and you know, all the things that we do, all your good karma begins to tip the scale toward the positive, and then it's easier to empty out the rest of it. <laughs> That's not scientific, but it was a very colorful way to put it. I just love that picture of tipping the scale and then emptying out the rest of it. I've always thought of I used to think of it a, a lot because I was, we were in the kamikaze karma yoga period, which we're still in, but it was especially dramatic then. And I, I was conscious of the fact that, um, as Swami says in here, seva, selfless service, is the best way to overcome your ego. And I was conscious that there was always this kind of neck and neck of, of egoic um, disaster and accumulated bad karma, it was like a hot rod thing. And they were, they were drag racing. And here was the good karma of all that we were trying to do. And here's the bad karma. And they're just neck and neck for a really long time. And you just keep going. And then, then you can cut it off like that. That was sort of how I would visualize it. You just keep going. And at a certain point, you can cut it off. And that was just what Swami was saying. It tips and then you can empty it out. You just, you just get a little ahead of it. It's, it's a, it feels like it tips. By no means is it clear sailing. But there's just this feeling suddenly that you're leaning in the right direction. That you've just, you know, you've gotten your, um, your devotee legs enough under you that you know what to do. Even if it's a tough job to do it, you know what it is. Okay, comments or questions on anything? Let me just do one more. Then in 324 he says, by Samyama on friendliness, compassion, etc., one gains the power to bring out those qualities in others. I was thinking that this is not dissimilar to when he says when, you're, when you've practiced perfect ahimsa, perfect harmlessness, then enmity cannot arise in your presence because you, there's no, your vibration is so um, harmonious that, that, that whatever other vibrations come into your aura are converted. The law of magnetism is that the stronger magnetism uh, always affects the weaker magnetism. That's why Master said you need to be careful about shaking hands, which we do as a common custom in the West because there's a horseshoe magnet created, he said, between the two individuals. And whoever has the stronger magnetism 
will influence the one who has the weaker magnetism. Which is why you should never shake hands unconsciously and you should never... Um, uh, well, unconsciously. You sh- and you should never shake hands weakly. You know, the idea of having a good solid grip is not just so that you can impress them and get the job. It's that if you don't have a strong aura of your own, then the other person's aura will simply come into you. And unless it's an aura that you want, and if it isn't, and it's not that you put out an energy that is rejecting, it's that you put out, just put out an energy that's dynamic. Master uh, made the interesting comment that when there's a, like a plane crash and everyone is killed, he said this, he said, it may not have been everyone's karma to die, but some of the people who die may not have had a strong enough karma to live to be able to uh, overcome the magnetism of everybody else who had to die strange way to put it, isn't it? Because we think of it as more exact than that. But so it's, you can't be passive in your own life, in other words. You have to be, you have to be fully engaged. There was a, a plane that, that crashed outside of Chicago. This was 40 years ago. But the mother of a, an Ananda resident had a ticket on that plane to come and visit her daughter. And like two days or three days before, the daughter just called up and said, Mom, you know... And she wasn't even sure why she called her mom. It doesn't feel like a good time for you to visit. Why don't you postpone the trip a couple of weeks? So the mother cashed in her ticket and rescheduled, and that was the very plane that went down. But she had the karma not to die, and her daughter was the instrument that um, was able to call her and tell her, you know, it's not your karma to die. Don't get on that plane. Even though that didn't know, she didn't know that's what she was saying. But that's... Well, that goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning. We think we need so many things to protect us, but actually all we need is divine attunement. Because if we have used our magnetism and energy to become divinely attuned, then everything else about our life experience will be influenced by that center. How could you plan that? There was, of course, no way at all to plan it. She'd made a certain decision, but then something intervened for her. Fascinating, huh? Let's take a short break. All right. Does anyone have any questions or comments before we barrel on? I had a little bit more to say about 324, which we're working on. I was uh, just remembering how, um, how habitually uh, Swamiji would befriend people and how many people who would meet him just once would describe him as their best friend because he could offer them a quality of acceptance and friendship that uh, was so distinct and so tangible that even though their connection with him might have been brief um, the energy of it was not brief and it came in very deeply to them so he says you can bring these qualities out in others I remember there was someone in our community who was not easy to get along with. Um, but Swami described the fact that that person behaved in a certain very um, positive and uplifting way with him. And he said, because she can do it with me, I know she has it in her. That's how he put it. He was able to pull it out of her, pull those same qualities out of her, and therefore he knew that she was capable of it. And in 
in the company of lesser magnetism, in the presence of lesser magnetism, she would revert. But in the presence of higher magnetism, she could rise to it. And that's one of the ways in which the darshan or the satsang with, um, it, with, with good yogis or highly advanced yogis actually transforms us because we ourselves, not only is, is it awakened, but we experience it. I remember someone who traveled with Swami on a long trip, the person who had had a strong inclination toward negativity, to be a bit of a complainer and to always see the problems. In the process of that journey, being with Swamiji so much, the person came back and said, I really saw the difference because other people had been trying to correct their negative energy, but they didn't even really understand because that's the way they'd always been. They didn't know it was negative until they had experienced the other because Swamiji's energy and the energy of others on the journey also really brought that out of them. I had another... Oh, yes. Um, When I was first living at Ananda Village and my first job that first summer, 1971, was running the kitchen and I used to cook the dinner, the lunch, that was served after Sunday service. And this was up at what is now the seclusion retreat, the very remote area, but it was the only place we had. And every other Sunday at a certain point, Swami Kriyananda would come up and give the service. And on the alternate Sundays, one of the other um, acharyas would, the, the embryonic ministers. <laughs> We're all just learning. And I would, I would cook both weeks. And uh, when Swami was there, I would cook the best possible meal I could. I'd, I'd cook all day Saturday. I'd just make it as good as I could. When someone else was uh, doing the service, I would sometimes you know, come in an hour before and just put something together and put it on the table. I cooked all the meals for all the people. It was really like a mother cooking. It wasn't like a restaurant. But what happened was, after I did that for a while, I began to realize that I enjoyed the conscientious approach much more than I enjoyed the, oh, what can I get away with approach. And so nobody really had to tell me the difference, but I myself, I was motivated to be dynamic. And I realized that 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 inherently was the enjoyable response. So that's one of the ways in which darshan and satsang actually change us, is they give us the experience of ourselves on a higher octave. That's what pilgrimage does. Seclusions will do that. And then you see yourself on a higher octave and you have your own, you're motivated on your own. This feels so much better than the other way of living. But often we won't do it like that woman who could discipline herself and be nice to Swami and then did not bother to discipline herself and to be nice to anyone else. And we we learn, oh, this really is for me. So as the Master Swami uses the word that's, that's magnetism. Magnetism is when you yourself find the energy to rise. And the masters change us through magnetism, which is they, they give us the force, which is what the next sutra is also about. Okay? Um, number 325. By samyama on strength, as in elephants, that's the example they give us. Whoa, the strength of elephants. One draws their strength to oneself. This is true of any quality, whether it's physical strength, artistic ability, the ability to succeed in business. And then they tell the story about how Master 
in one week uh, did a, a far better painting than the experienced artist did. In anything you do, get in tune with whatever consciousness it takes to do it well. Above all, develop the right magnetism. You know, Swamiji talks in so many different places about how magnetism is the key to everything because magnetism draws to us both energy, inspiration, opportunity. Magnetism is one of those words that when you begin to understand that this is that what appears to us to be a solid material world is not really fixed matter but is a series of vibrations operating at different speeds that it's all just energy in motion then we realize that magnetism is the force that makes everything happen because if you're just dealing with energy what you need to do is you need to move energy with the right kind of energy it isn't really just a matter of brute strength and picking things up although I, I was amused Sudarshan, who lived here a long time ago, who really loves to go out into wilderness areas, spent some time living with some uh, desert rat, some, some old, old codger, as he himself called him, who lived out in the desert somewhere. And the man had a, a, a railroad car, a flatbed railroad car, and he wanted to put that railroad car across a ravine to make a bridge. And it was a railroad car. And Sudarshan was the only guy there to help him. And Sudarshan said to the guy, how are we going to do this? And the guy said, sheer ignorance and brute force. <laughs> and he said, you know, meaning, I, don't, I believe we, we're too stupid to know we can't do it. <laughs> so sheer ignorance and brute force, and by golly, they did. He didn't ever explain how, but they got that thing across the ravine, just like the guy wanted, because they were determined to do it. So... But that determination also, if you're really determined to do something and can really sort of see where you're going, I was talking about the development of this whole colony. It's like there was just this, there was this determination that we were going to be able to do this. And that determination itself creates this force of magnetism and that magnetism draws inspiration. I mean, thinking about this building, we, we bought it for a price that was much too low considering where it is. I mean, it was still 20 years ago, but still it was much too low even for this, for what we got. And because the realtor that we had um, was a friend of the realtor who was handling it for the Catholic Church, selling it, and that guy was not getting a commission, he was just doing it as a favor, and he was an older guy, and he didn't want to particularly put out much energy, and he knew our realtor and he knew she was easy to deal with and it would be a simple matter and she was reliable and so it just it sort of all came like this but it was it wasn't it the time that it all came together with all of those different things touching was the result of all the time prior to that when we had just continually put out this energy to, in determination to see how this would succeed and even that was it says you have to get into get in tune with he says Get in tune with whatever consciousness it takes to do it well. When we were, this was a specific question in regard to the community that we uh, lease and live in now, when we were trying to bring that to expression, and we asked Swamiji, how do we pray for this? I mean, that was a way of asking, what consciousness do we have to get in tune with? And he, his answer was very important. He said, 
don't ask God whether this is a good idea. He said, self-evidently, it's a good idea. It's what Master suggested, that devotees can live together. If you can manage to create a living space where you all can meditate and be together, you don't have to ask God, do you you want us to do this? Of course he wants you to do it. Common sense says, don't bother to ask whether it's, you know, whether it's a good idea. Accept that it's a good idea and then demand of God that he show you how to manifest it. And so that's the consciousness that you get into. You get, that's what it takes when in this particular reality to manifest a spiritual work. So when we were ready to do the church, which came a few years later, you know, there was that same, the consciousness was we're serving master's work and we're determined to make this happen. And we, how did we learn that? We learned that from Swami. Because that was how he moved through all the years of developing Ananda. He always had this thought that this I'm doing this for God. I'm doing the best I can. And he was, at the same time, he was detached from success or failure. But that didn't mean that he wasn't committed to absolutely giving everything he could to try to succeed. And again, we learned that from him also, that um, Nishkam Karma, to be detached from the fruits of your action, does not mean that you sit back and see whether God hands it to you or not. That's what some people think that means, is that I don't become too engaged because I don't want to become attached. You know, it, it, that's, that's not detachment, that's just laziness as a rule, an, an unwillingness either or a lack of courage, a lack of energy or a lack of courage. So what he's saying here is that before you do anything, you really need to understand what's the consciousness that's required here. And, you know, some things are a matter of willpower, but if you're, you know, uh, growing plants or, for example, and you're trying to make your orchids blossom, you can't make your orchids blossom by overpowering them with your magnetism. You know, there has to be a more sensitive awareness. If you're um, educating children, if you're working with someone who's emotionally um, wounded in some way, you have to figure what is the consciousness that I have to get involved in here in order to really bring this forth. And a lot of times people don't think about the consciousness. They just think about what are the rules. This is how we said it's supposed to be done. Let's just do it. Right now, uh, educating children in America, especially in this particular area, is just reaching crisis proportions. Just we're, we, even in our own school, you know, we're always having to reassure people that yes, you know, the way we run our kindergarten will result in your child having superior SAT scores, you know. And I was talking to one of the young teachers and I was saying, uh, one of the teachers of young children, saying that the whole discussion is just ridiculous. What's required at this age for these children is that they be loved, that they get confidence in themselves, that they, you know, they get an excitement for learning whether we use this math program or that one or this kind of phonics or that computer or this computer. It's just like there's no, what is needed, the consciousness that's needed in order to really bring these children up the way they really need to be brought up is not this, you know, analysis of every little tiny option and it's, I mean, there was another suicide at the local high school. And, and there's, there's just this crazy thought form going that it's not because they're, you know, we know they're terribly stressed, but we don't dare change a thing. We're, just, we're not going to change anything. We're just going to somehow hope that we can just keep on doing this 
and that this won't happen. But it's, it's just not, we're not in tune. We don't have the right magnetism to solve this problem. And so whenever you start to do something, you ask yourself, you know, what's the right magnetism here? In fact, Swamiji um, uh, said to me, because I did not have a lack of energy, but I had a lack of uh, relaxation. Uh, I had too much anxiety about what I did. And, and the more, sometimes when I would get overwrought, I would get more anxious. And, and it was funny because he gave everybody different advice. You know, me, he was always telling, that's enough, you can go rest. I mean, it wasn't that I was over-conscientious, it was just that I was wound up. Um, and others, he would encourage them to work more because they were, had too much of a vacation ethic toward life. But he said to me very strongly, you won't necessarily be able to do more good by doing more. And that was, I've always remembered that exactly because for me that was the right advice. And I, I began to understand that what makes what I'm doing successful is if I have the right magnetism. Whatever it is, whether I'm sewing or cooking or doing this sort of thing, whatever it might de- be, if the magnetism isn't there, nothing will work. It's fun when you're doing even something like sewing. And sometimes it happens. Sewing is an interesting thing because I've done that with the school costumes. And sometimes... You know, you just have so much to do and you just really want to finish. And as soon as you do that, the bobbin starts breaking, the needle breaks. And then you try to replace the needle and then the valve won't come off and then you can't find the other needles. And then you put that one in and then the thread breaks and then you didn't notice that it wasn't threaded properly. It's just like a cascade of errors. And invariably, I realize that I've become anxious I'm pushing, I'm looking at the clock, all of those different things. And your magnetism goes off and your machines will break because your magnetism is just, it's not there. It's not going to work. I know once I had to, uh, we learned this from Van Mali Devi in India. She said whenever she has too much to do and not enough time to do it, she moves into Krishna time, is what she called it, because she's a devotee of Krishna. And, and, you know, Krishna stopped the sunset in order to give Arjuna time to fulfill his vow in the story of the Mahabharata that Arjuna had vowed to accomplish something by the end of the day and he said he would kill himself if he didn't uh, succeed and he was about to fail so Krishna stopped the sun in the sky and so Krishna can do anything so you go into Krishna time and you just leave it to Krishna to make sure that you can fulfill your vow and the, the, the key is that you turn all your clocks to the wall and then you just proceed and do what you have to do. And on, I've, I've used it on a number of occasions, and I've used it psychologically a lot of times. Oh, I have too much to do, I'm never going to get it done. No, no, just go into Krishna time. If it has to be done, it will get done. But one night, I, I was going to... I must have been going to India. Yes, I was going to India the next day. And I needed to leave. This doesn't. The timing of that doesn't make sense, but maybe it was. But I, I needed to get a certain amount... I realized that in order for people to work on the costumes while I was gone, I had to cut them all out and bag them up in a certain way because otherwise nobody was going to get any work done. And I really needed them to get the work done. So I sort of realized that a little late. And so that about 6 o'clock that night, and I was leaving at 6 o'clock the next morning, I just saw that I had to get all this work done. And I just, I went into Krishna time. I just put the clock where I couldn't see it. I turned on the 
books on tape with Swami. He was reading the Rubaiyat and maybe a couple other things. And I just very steadily but very calmly just did that work. And, you know, I didn't take many breaks. At one point I was a little hungry. I sat down and I ate something. I just went like that and I literally finished cutting out the last one at just the time I had planned to get up. (laughs) And it was just, it was it. It was done. But it was all the right magnetism. Because what is it going to accomplish? And Swamiji also puts it this way. What's the right magnetism for your life? He himself said he would never allow anything to disturb his inner peace. And it was twofold. He would, you know, just withdraw or change his attitude if it was going to disturb his peace. But also even in the midst of chaos around him, he simply refused to allow his inner peace to be disturbed. So as I was saying that to some of you last week, he just... He just always held himself right in the center because that is the fundamental magnetism and that's the fundamental consciousness that's needed for success in everything. Is that if if we're centered, then everything works. Swami wrote um, this little thing. He he wrote an article about the Akashic Record. It was actually a chapter in someone else's book and had this wonderful, wonderful paragraph in it. He says... I have learned that all knowledge is there already. This was he was talking about the Akashic record, meaning it's just a vibration of the universe. I have learned, however, that all knowledge is there. You don't have to create it. You have only to access it. Simply ask in the right way. Not with pride in your accomplishment, but only with an open heart. I don't even mean to ask humbly, in the sense of self-deprecatingly, don't think about yourself at all, nor about your ability or lack of it. Concentrate rather on attuning yourself with that infinite consciousness and ask for guidance in what you want to do. It is delightful, fun, and deeply inspiring to let yourself be used in this way. Isn't that sweet? Many years ago, I... uh, uh, Swamiji was in San Francisco. This would be 1979, 80. Yeah, in 80, maybe. Yeah, probably 1980. And they were starting the San Francisco house and he had a little apartment there for a while. And he, would, made a, he was making a recording after all the classes were done. He would make a recording. It's, it's the recording that's called Now Music for Meditation. I don't know if it still exists or not him on the harmonium all by himself with one microphone and he had this tape recorder you know big tape recorder and just only tells you how desperate he was for help I was the recording engineer which is way 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 not my strong suit neither machines nor that kind of sensitivity but there I was and so after he would give his classes we would often go back to his apartment and then he would uh, you know meditate a little or eat a little bit and then he would chant for an hour or so while we worked on this and one night I absolutely could not make the darn thing work I just could not get the sound to go onto the tape and I'd been doing it all along I got out the manual I telephoned a couple of other people Swami comes you know are you ready no sir I'm not ready well I'll go meditate some more you know I'll go take a shower and change into my pajamas you know and I'll and he would came out about three times and it's just I couldn't make it work at all no matter what I tried 
finally it occurred to me to pray which I you know I was embarrassed to say it hadn't occurred to me and I just said Divine Mother if you want this recording done you're going to have to do something and then I pulled out every plug and then I reassembled it in exactly the same way and I had already checked to make sure they were firm but I just took them all out I put them all back perfect (laughs) and it was because prior to that I'd been frantic I'd just been frantic making phone calls thumbing through it trying you know just over and over but as soon as I just went into that reality but you have to remember to use it and so that's why you want to get in your head what is the consciousness required for success in this endeavor before you do anything or whenever you're having difficulties whatever those difficulties what is the consciousness required for success in this endeavor you know and you have to think like an artist or be an artist or be a businessman a friend of mine who worked at home on the telephone he was in he was in finance he worked at home on the telephone he didn't even work on Skype he just worked on the phone but he always sat at his desk in a coat and tie because <laughs> it put him it put him in the in a coat and tie because it put him in the bob you know if he sat there in his jammies it just didn't work it, was, it just wasn't the right thing for him I was laughing because a, a friend of mine who also worked out of his uh, living room uh, he was making a business appointment he worked at a very high level but just out of his living room and he was making a business appointment with some other guy and they were both deferring to the other about whose office they should meet in and finally my friend said I'm in my bedroom and the guy said I'm in my garage <laughs> <laughs> and they agreed to meet at Starbucks and that was that <laughs> and this is the world we live in now alright is there any questions or thoughts before we call it a night Okay. so we did tonight just because I'm supposed to put this on the tape we started at we started at 319 and we finished 325 we did 19 through 25 yeah we're zipping along okay All right, great souls, that'll be it for tonight.